that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. I'm with Dr. Lloyd Ackert, Associate Teaching Professor of History at Drexel University, and we're here to talk about one of the four founders of microbiology and ecology, Sergei Vinogradsky and Lloyd's book, Sergei Vinogradsky and the Cycle of Life. How are you, Lloyd? Oh, doing great. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. It seems to me like maybe Vinogradsky's work was accepted scientifically, but culturally didn't kind of make it to somebody like me. And now we have all this talk about organic, inorganic what feeds your body, the understanding of everything working together, everything being alive. But now it seems like we are kind of accepting that culturally. These debates have ancient roots. And people even surmise that they were microscopic things, right? They were atoms and there were things that were holding the world together. But those are ideas that from a distant past and a different kind of culture than then maybe it would be helpful to think about modern science. If you start in the late 19th century, second half of the 19th century, a lot of people are thinking about agriculture, for sure, mm-hmm. and about how to do it better. And there are a lot of confusing ideas in competitive schools, even trying to figure out what fermentation is. Is it a biological or a chemical or a materialistic or a vitalistic process? And it was only after Pasteur and Cohn and, and a group of others, and Robert Koch, plus Vinogradsky in the next generation, who really showed how the microbes do the work of decomposition, of causing disease, of uh, fertilization. Now we know that there are these bacteria who are defined by species and their physiology, not just by their location in nature, that they are doing work. Hmm. Now what can we do? And then. It's really an explosion of studies around that topic. The social side is as equally important in that people start to see that agriculture was being controlled by factory farms. And as you move into the 20th century, people go back to the old 19th century ideas and they argue for an organic farming in place of, in contest to chemical farming. Mm -hmm. In the face of all that, this move towards a chemicalization of our world Mm-hmm. A lot of people go back and say, no, let's just have an organic farm where you have cows and you use the manure to grow the crops to feed the cows and the people, and all of that is in a system. They argue not only for better agriculture, but they believe that this was the foundation for a better society. Yeah. It, it fails miserably. <laughs> it's a horrible <laughs> ending to the story. Like if you look at the contest between new kinds of sources of energy, and the fossil fuel industry. We start to see how those old systems have an inertia and they constrict our changes. There's a lot of money in it. There's a lot of interest in it. It's the way we do things, and it's very hard to change. Mm. But we do change. And if people were to look back, right, if you look back 20 years ago and see how much 
farming, how farming was done, and you look how it is today, there's quite a radical change happening. I think the word that I was looking for was interconnectedness mm. and intersectionality. And that seems to be a bigger discussion across the board, not just for identity politics, but even the way we conceptualize our place within the world and our relationship to food and agriculture, the fact that we have to have happy cows or happy <laughs> chickens, and like the ethics, I guess the ethics of food and food production has become a bigger concern. Yeah, I, I think that's very important. The, the earth is, is self-regulatory today because of the role of microbes. They are individually, right, more of them than anything, by so far uh, a magnitude that we almost don't count. It sounds like there's a lot of stuff happening at the same time. Like there's this holistic way of thinking about things that is influencing the lab and the science aspect, but the lab is not completely replacing the holistic way as much as explaining the holistic way. There is the laboratory revolution. That's a general category and theme in the history of science and that in the end of the 19th century, Everybody's trying to become a real science. Physics has been there. Chemistry has been there. They're the ones who determined, defined what laboratory science meant. But now biology is saying, well, what about us? How do we get the play, right? And so physiology is a way to do it, to really think about, take things apart, be reductivist, measure. But on the other hand, the Darwinian revolution happens at the same time. Darwin's book, 1859, The Origin of Species, comes out, and it's this dramatic influence on the way people think about almost every science. It's this holistic science itself that really is trying to understand how the world works, how nature works. And if you look at the way this British idea is received, then you have a really interesting story to tell about Vinogradsky as a Russian scientist looking for physiology looking for Pasteurian science, and then having to deal with this new Darwinian world. And the Russians didn't really accept Darwin wholeheartedly, right? That is, they liked this idea of evolution, but they disliked the economic um, approach that the British took. Animals in nature work together in nature. Their things make sense logically there. Mm-hmm. So they, they tried to write a new kind of science, and there's some famous examples of Kropotkin, the great uh, anarchist like the scientist. Yeah, he's the anarchist prince. And he's also an amazing biologist. And he came up with this idea of mutual aid. And if you look at nature, you don't see competition everywhere, but you see a system of mutual aid. People have made arguments that this is connected to Russia's uh, political system. They still had peasants at that time all the different classes of society having to work together mutually to have a successful society might have influenced his own scientific ideas. For Vinogradsky, Mm -hmm. he had no use for Darwin. He's looking at organisms that are so small, you can't see them with the naked eye. And so he said, I will use some other kind of philosophical construct to, to study these organisms. And I think that's where, 1890s, he starts to talk about explicitly the role of microbes in nature. Hmm. So Vinogradsky doesn't really need competition, Darwinian competition. He can look at things in a much different light. Pop the Question is brought to you by Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University.
Pannoni Honors College is invested in undergraduate research, scholar development, and interdisciplinary scholarship. With students from various backgrounds and academic fields of study, the Honors College engages its community in complex ideas. Info at drexel.edu slash Pannoni. That's P-E-N-N-O-N-I. Pannoni Honors College, a place for active learning, high achievement, and community. Uh, one thing probably we should address is this notion of ecology. Mm. Um, it was in that work that he became explicitly an ecologist himself, Vinogradsky that is. And he said, oh, I'm like Louis Pasteur. Jeez, it's the 1860s, Pasteur's work. Uh, was changing the world with his ideas about medicine and disease and the germ theory. And Vinogradsky read all of his things. <laughs> and now I'm here, I'm an ecologist. If you didn't notice, that's what I'm doing here. He retranslated his own work into this new mid-20th century ecological treatise. My task was to backtrack from that to go as far back into the original writings in German and in Russian and all the other languages he knew and to then find out what was his role, right? His role in society uh, is that he was a confused person. <laughs> he didn't have a strong national identity. Maybe. No, he seems everywhere. <laughs> and then I was also yeah. amazed by the network of scientists that seemed to exist during a time that I wasn't aware that there was such a network yeah. where he's able to connect with people, not just in Europe, but also outside which I think really interesting considering how networked we think we are, but even in the 19th and early 20th century able to connect. I think that's an important thing to point out. Uh, his, his own life cycle was one that moved through those areas. Did you always want to be in academia? What did, you, oh, what did little Lloyd want to be when he grew up? As a kid... I wanted to be, I'm pretty sure, an astronaut because I grew up in the time when the Mars mission was on everybody's mind. This would be the, the moon mission. Ignition and so I even five. was able to go in uh, when I was about eight years old to see a launch in Florida. And so I, I think just seeing like, being the Apollo program was really in my mind. Rocket, I'm taking a rocket. I'm packing my suitcase and look out I ask that because you're a historian of science. So I wanted to know what came first for you, history or science. No, absolutely not history. I had the worst teacher who was uh, the football coach. So it was not an inspiring beginning to uh, any historical career. My interest was uh, in making things. Mm -hmm. And then this other inspiration, first by the space program, uh, and then second by science fiction, reading a lot of the early works of Ray Bradbury, uh, Isaac Asimov, and, um, and many others, uh, Robert Heinlein, really inspired me to think about space in a new way and all the different aspects, I mean, sophisticated science fiction, although I like the junky stuff too and still do. <laughs> Astrophysics was yeah. in the air too because of giant dwarfs and white dwarfs and red stars, and, but I couldn't do calculus and I, um, very well. And that's when I moved into history of science. So how do you get from history of science to studying 
Sergei Vinogradsky. It comes after a long series of events, which starts back in universe, well, in the Air Force, where I studied Russian. Uh, this language program, Defense Language Institute, was looking for linguists. And then I became a Russian linguist. Mm. But that language played in, in that a colleague of mine, one of my great mentors, John Beatty, needed a Russian linguist in order to help him with the History of Science project. Uh, and he was a philosopher and historian of biology who worked on um, this, this very interesting Russian-American geneticist named Theodosius Dobzhansky. So Dobzhansky was one of the founders of what we call the modern synthesis, which is the combination of uh, Mendelian genetics with evolutionary theory. And Dobzhansky was one of the first to really bring those two together. He did it in uh, 1939 in this book uh, called uh, genetics and the origin of species. Mm. And, and serendipity comes into his story because the only reason why he actually wrote the book, he was such an energetic person but always very busy, uh, is that he broke his leg horseback riding and spent a year not being able to work. So he just sat down and wrote this book out, <laughs> and uh, which was, a, a, I think, a, a, a serendipity in science. But I think that's like serendipity plays an important part in every story in science, as far as I can tell, where it's just not always by happenstance, but to even lead to the questions that scientists go through. Based off of what I've read about Vinogradsky, like he grows up on a farm, he could be a pianist, like he's so smart and is able to do so many different things, but is also kind of constantly bored because he's so capable at everything. He also kind of sounds like Ferris Bueller to me. Um, <laughs> they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. There's other work that would look at him, and you forget about all the biography and say, well, what did he contribute? Then you would look at his scientific work only. And if you, if you do that, there now you have this talented microbiologist in the laboratory in the early 20th century who is coming up with these ideas. Mm -hmm. The serendipity is, is very complicated in that it's just life. You might think, oh, I'm going to go to St. Petersburg like he did to become a pianist and study with the great Leszczyzny and be that virtuoso of music. Failed for him because he just really wasn't at the level that you needed to be to hmm. continue on. And then he's turned around and looked at the intellectual situation. He wanted to be an intellectual. He wanted to be that virtuoso. And the next best choice at the time in the, ninth, well, uh, the 1870s in St. Petersburg, Russia, was science. It was the next cool thing. People think about science sometimes as it floats around out there in the world. But science is embedded in the minds of the people doing it the things they write. Yeah. It's written in the instruments that people use, the tools that they have, uh, the things that they make. And so, how do you capture that? How do you then identify, define what science is or philosophy is or literature is? Philosophy seems to me like an extracurricular mm -hmm. within the academy, as opposed to thinking about philosophy being the undercurrent for a lot of academia in general. 
Like science is influenced by philosophy and philosophy influenced by science. That's the interconnectedness. I don't know when that begins to be thought of as a separate issue. Like you do science, you do biology work in a biology classroom and then you do philosophy in a philosophy classroom and none the twain shall meet. I teach an honors 200 course here at Drexel, which is on, uh, I read Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose and they actually get into it enough because it's a murder mystery in a 14th mm -hmm. century monastery and well that but it's really about what is truth how do you evaluate truth is it through logic or through chance or some combination of all them or is there none right and and it's really fun to work with students who are just starting their college career today to in a world of the political world, <laughs> I was about to say, it's not, it's not at all a topic of interest <laughs> today. Science is real. From anatomy to geology. If you think about the world where fact and truth and knowledge is all questioned and has the, 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 bu the bureaucracies and institutions that gave that system a home, if that is all falling apart, or changing or being dismantled and reorganized or ignored, how do we take and go back to 100 years ago and, re and try to evaluate and interpret what those people were doing? We don't have all the information we need to tell this story, so we have to make conjecture and guess and tell the best narrative we can. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my next book, I would love to be about this idea of telling a history of how we feel in nature. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been thinking about for the last couple of months is really how to move from my esoteric, very detailed story of Vinogradsky and the cycle of life, right? His scientific work, his life, its impact. Uh, but really the big story is that it's a history of ecology. I think from a different philosophical viewpoint like the cycle of life. It's not just Vinogradsky and a number of people like that. It doesn't mean that they can't later like Darwin, but it means that they develop their ideas in this in ecological ideas, fueled by, influenced by ideas outside of Darwin. So that was what I added to the history of ecology, to the history of science, and I think that will last. Vinogradsky himself, as you noted, an obscure figure, at least for the West, <laughs> but I think so will be an important one, and the work that he did, seen in the light of ecology, is an important one. Yeah. Well, thanks, Lloyd. Thank you. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our audio engineering and theme was produced by Brian Kantorik. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paul Morans-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. What are we talking about? Practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice. We're talking about practice, man.